So this morning, I will be, well, we will be reading from Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. So please turn with me there. Oh, and, and everyone, please stand for the reading of God's word. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing well? Good. It's good to be with you. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Just good to gather on a sunny Sunday morning. A lot of our college students are out on spring break. And for those of you here, grateful that you're hanging out with us uh, during this Sunday of the beginning of your spring break. But it's good to meet every week, gather every week. It's a gift. Last week, we weren't able to gather together because of power outages, because of the windstorm. Uh, And man, missing one week for me is just, man, I just miss being with you guys each and every week, singing with you, opening up God's word but grateful to be back together again this morning. Uh, Before we open up again to Hebrews 13, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his words. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we pray that you would calm and quiet us this morning. Lord, I know there's lots of different people that are going through lots of different things this morning. Some that are extremely challenging and difficult. And some of us just have a lot going on in our heads with distraction, with good things even. But Lord, no matter where we're at and where our mind is this morning, I pray now for this moment as we open your word that you would help us to focus in. You would calm and quiet us down that we might receive from you this morning what you'd have for us from your word. And Lord, as we jump into a a bit of a challenging text for us, I pray that we would be attentive that we would listen, that we would receive, that you would bring a conviction, but through that conviction, bring actual transformation to our lives. Lord, we believe your word is living and active and we believe it's for our good. It's a gift to us that everything that you say in your word is purposeful and intentional and meaningful for us. So as we focus in on these two verses this morning, may we be attentive to that reality that you want us to hear your word this morning. And so I just ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us to bring about that transformation that we cannot fabricate on our own, but we are desperate for you to do that work. And so Lord, may this be a time that's honoring to you, that's glorifying to you as we submit ourselves to you and to your word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. In the early 1870s in England, the stepson of Mary Ann Cotton, a a boy named Charles Edward Cotton, passed away rather suddenly. In England at this time, that was not unusual for that to happen for a child due to poor conditions and health issues that would come up that modern medicine they didn't have at that time couldn't resolve. And so this case for most situations would have gone uh, unnoticed, wouldn't have been any different in this situation because it seemed as if this boy had died from natural causes. And it wouldn't have been seen as any different, except that 
three of Marianne's four previous husbands had passed away, along with 11 of her 13 children. Upon learning this, a further investigation took place, and it was discovered that the boy had arsenic in his system. It seems as if Marianne Cotton had a pattern of slowly poisoning people in an undetectable way so that she could get life insurance money and so that no one would catch her in what she was doing until it was way too late. Now, poison is a dangerous thing for two reasons. One, the obvious one, because it can kill you. It can take your life. But the second reason it's dangerous is because most of the time you don't know it's happening until it's too late. Well, today as we dive into our text, what we're going to see is that there's a call from the author of Hebrews for all of us, whether we call ourselves followers of Jesus or not, to be on guard against a deadly poison that might be present in our lives and we not even know it. That poison is the love of money. Now, the title of the sermon today is Crushing Greed. Crushing Greed. And you can take that two ways. Greed is something that will crush you. Even if you don't recognize it or know what to do about it, just like arsenic. But the truth of our text today, along with the rest of Scripture, also shows us a solution so that you and I can be people who are crushing greed ourselves instead of being crushed by it. Bringing it to have no power in our lives, both individually and as a community on mission together. Now this is especially important for us to pay attention to. Again, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, because you and I find ourselves living in a very affluent Western culture, and even more so here in Fairfax, within Fairfax County, the second richest county in all of this country, and obviously then throughout all of the world. It's important for us to pay attention to, regardless also of how much we actually have. How much money or things you have. Because love of money and greed is indiscriminate. You can have a whole lot or a little and still experience the subtle poisoning and effect of greed. So let me encourage you this morning. As I prayed a few minutes ago, let me encourage you this morning to listen. Not for someone else. But to listen for yourself. Because the reality is you are likely being poisoned in some way by something And don't even recognize it or realize it. My hope is is that we look at our text this morning. That first we'll just see why this even matters. Why do we need to pay attention to this? Why is it that big of a deal? And then secondly, we'll also seek to just unmask greed in our lives. And lastly, discover the means of crushing greed. So let's get into it this morning. Jump into Hebrews 13. And may God bless the preaching of his word. As we said a few weeks ago, the end of Hebrews in chapter 13 is, is not just an add-on. It's not a kind of a PS or an appendix for this grand book, this letter that the author has written to this little church that's struggling. This is very intentional and it's purposeful and it's tied into this application that he has here in all this chapter is tied into and flows out of the central theme that we've seen weave its way all through the book of Hebrews and that is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so here the author is giving us two clear and related commands for our lives if we actually believe that to be true, that Jesus is better. So let's look at the first one. Verse 5 says, keep your life free from love of money. 
Now, the first thing we need to recognize and realize here is he doesn't say money in and of itself is a problem. He doesn't say money in and of itself is a problem. God has ordained that in life uh, that we need to have resources to be able to do things, to just live and move in and just exist, whether that's having a place to live or food to eat. Money has been ordained by God as necessary for life and for ministry, for the advancement of the gospel. So what we need to understand right away, though, is that having a lot, then, is not inherently unrighteous or wrong. Just like having little is not inherently righteous or right or good. It could be, but it isn't just because of what it is. The issue that he points out here is that it's a love of money. See, when, when you and I love something, we place our affections on something or give our affections to someone or to something. Love is where your heart is inclined. It, it's what you orient your life around. Everything you think and say and do is affected by what you love. And it doesn't really matter what the object of your affection is. If, you're a, if you love Real Madrid, right, the soccer team, when I, when I, or football team, when, when, you, when you love them, you, you talk about them all the time and you seek to orient your life around them and watching them and knowing everything about them and consuming all things Real Madrid, If you love craft beer or artisan coffee, then you're going to be talking about it all the time with people and you want to tell people about it and teach them about it and understand it more and consume it, hopefully in moderation, but consume those things because you so appreciate and love them. If you love technology or video games, then you're going to talk about them and orient your life around engaging with and consuming those things. When you love a person, What do you do? You give them your time and attention and focus because you care about them so much. Simply put, you pursue that which you love. You pursue that which you love. So when the author says to keep your life free from love of money, he's calling you to not set your affections on money. Not set your affections or orient your life around money and the things that money can get you. Why is this the case? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us out by understanding, to understand this same issue in the book of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Paul's saying, along with the author of Hebrews, love of money can be something that's all-consuming. It can lead you to compromise your ethics. It can lead you to compromise your integrity. It's a root of all kinds of evil. Not a root of all evil, but all kinds of evil in your life. We also learn that love of money is enslaving. The author in Hebrews says that we need to keep your life free from the love of money. To be free of something is to be released from it, to not be held captive by it. Not being under its dominion or control or power. See, when we have to have more, get more, spend more, make more, it becomes an unending pursuit. It becomes an insatiable desire with a constant unending hunger for just a little bit more. 
but never able to be satisfied. I mean, at its worst, it can lead you, as Paul says, to compromise or walk away from your faith in Christ, which is what the author is most concerned about for this struggling church that he's writing to. That they would wander away from Jesus. It's what Jesus himself warned us about. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, what you value most, that's where your love is going to go. That's where your heart will be inclined to go, Jesus says. And then he ends his exhortation by saying, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. And what a sobering statement for Jesus to make to us. He could have picked anything else in there. You cannot serve both God and whatever. But he chose to talk about money. See, about 15% of everything Jesus taught on was related to money and possessions. Why? Well, as one author points out, because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith and finances, but God sees them as inseparable. See, what the author of Hebrews is saying and what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying is this is about your focus on money and what you do with it because both of those things reveal much about your heart and your worship. What do you value the most? What do you think about the most? Where are you finding your security and your peace the most? Now, what does a life look like that loves money? Well, I think it can pop up in a lot of different ways for us. It might look like envying those who have more than you or coveting what others have. Man, just kind of focusing in, I I wish I had what they had. I want what they have, whatever that happens to be. It might come out in the frustration in your own life over the status of your own material wealth or lack thereof. It could be being distracted from other important things in your life to work longer and make more. A constant focus on your bank accounts or investments or the ability to acquire more. I think one of the ways that comes out most in our lives that's a a subtle way is through hoarding. Hoarding our resources. And, And the subtlety of that is it's often masked as prudent saving. Now, saving can be a good thing. It's a wise thing to have resources saved so that you can be responsible with those things. But when we do it to the point of in excess, beyond wisdom and without faith, then we're keeping more than we need to. When we live indulgent lives, pursuing or getting whatever you want, whenever you want, however much of it you want. Not being generous. And lastly, just maybe categorically over all of this, is just having a joyless, self-focused life. See, if we had to sum up all of those things, give kind of a root synonym to the love of money, we could label it all as greed. Greed is a selfish, excessive, insatiable desire for more of something than is actually needed. An insatiable desire for more of something than is actually needed. And that gets to the heart of it. See, love of money is a fixation on money or what it can get you that's beyond what you need. 
And just like we saw a couple of weeks ago with sexual sin, selfishness lies behind greed because it's only focused on loving yourself. So when the author of Hebrews is calling you to keep your life free from love of money, he's calling you and I to crush self-focused greed. But here's perhaps the biggest problem of all. In order to crush greed, you first have to unmask greed. See, my guess is all of us would acknowledge pretty easily that greed exists in our world. And and I would guess we likely would acknowledge that love of money is a particularly acute problem here in Northern Virginia, where so many people have so much. But how many of us would actually acknowledge that it's an issue in our very own lives? Pastor and author Tim Keller hits the nail on the head. He says this, the Bible talks about money 20 or 30 times more than it talks about sex. Why? Because money's spiritual power blinds us to itself. When people are committing adultery, they know they're doing it. But hardly anyone who loves money too much knows that they do. People are always confessing sexual sins, but almost no one says, I'm materialistic or I'm greedy. If the Bible continually warns us about the danger of materialism, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it, then it means a great number of people are blinded to and by the power of money in their lives. He goes on to say, the only responsible thing to do is go on the working hypothesis that we are infected by materialism and must be on watch for it. If materialism is that insidious and stupefying, it's a lot like alcoholism. Maybe the clearest sign of materialism in your life is this. You aren't willing to even admit the possibility that you're enslaved to greed. Brothers and sisters, the author calls us to be free of the love of money because the love of money is enslaving and most of us don't even recognize our captivity to it. We can always look to someone else. Say, well, I'm not like them. They're greedy, but but I'm not like them. Notice he makes no comparison to anyone else. It's not on a sliding scale. So my question for you this morning, is that you? Are you being slowly and subtly poisoned by love of money and greed and you don't even recognize it? You don't even know it? Is that you? And are you even willing to consider that it might be you? Like actually take some time this week to go home and and pray and talk to God and and write down and talk with others. Like, is this actually an issue in my life? And I'm going to go off the working assumption that at some level it is. So God, would you show that to me? Would you make that clear to me? And may I base that off of what your word says, not by comparing myself to someone else. But let's press in a little bit further into the text. If a root of love of money is greed, what we learn from the rest of verse 5 is that the root of greed is discontentment. The greedy person can never be happy because the greedy person is never satisfied. And that's a basic heart level issue. Why do we chase after money and things? Because in them we believe we'll be satisfied. In them we believe we'll be content or secure or safe. And money can easily become a false god then who makes false promises to you. 
leading you to believe just a little bit more, and I'll be okay. See, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, though, doesn't just give the command to be free of the love of money. It gives that second and inverse command that's the solution to the problem. Then be content. Be content. To be content is to be satisfied and at peace and to have joy. Instead of longing for more or envying others who have what you don't, you're grateful for what you do have. See, gratefulness is an overflow of contentment. And so if you look at your life and you recognize there's a lack of gratefulness in your life, then what that reveals to you is that there's a lack of contentment. And so if love of money is like poison, contentment is the antidote, the author says. And to experience freedom, the call for followers of Jesus is to be crushing greed through contentment. But the problem for a lot of us is, I don't know how to do that. How do I actually grow in contentment? Is it something I just kind of have to muscle up on my own? Do I just kind of grit my teeth and just say, all right, I'm going to try and be more content today? No, the author gives us the answer here. He roots our contentment in something much bigger than ourselves. Look at the verses again. Let me just read them again. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Key word here, for. For. Here's the basis of your contentment. For. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, what's he saying? Simply this, contentment is based on the character of God. He declares to you that he's faithful. He declares to you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And who is this God? This is not some some incapable slouch. This is the transcendent God of all creation. This is the God Almighty, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, full of mercy and grace, is saying to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. See, what the author is saying here is huge. Your ability to be content then isn't rooted in your ability to think good thoughts. It isn't rooted in your ability to be positive or optimistic about your situation. It isn't rooted in the ability that you have to convince yourself or will yourself into contentment. It isn't based on your ability at all. It's based on who God is and your belief in him. See, money lies to you. It lies to you and it says to you that it will satisfy you, but God speaks truth to you. He speaks truth to you and says he will satisfy you, not with riches of this world, but with the fullness of himself. See, notice what he promises in verse 5. He says, be free from the love of money, be content, for God has said to you, I will never leave you. He's giving you not more things, he's giving you his presence. Whether you have a lot or have a little, God says to you, I will not abandon you. He's a good father who will give you exactly what you need when you need it. One theologian writes this, contentment is the product of a heart resting in God. It's the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good. See, the reality is you and I are are always seeking to find contentment in someone 
or something. And the question isn't are we, but what are we seeking to find contentment in? For me, as I think about this, particularly as it relates to money, for me, oftentimes it comes down to control. That when I feel like I'm in control of all these things, then I feel at peace. I have contentment. Or when I can be comfortable, then, then I'll be content. So I want to use resources to do those things, to be in control and be comfortable. What is it for you? What are you seeking to find contentment in right now? Here's the key, though. Contentment is something that is to be pursued no matter how much you have. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that first he had to learn contentment. It's not something that just automatically comes. He had to learn contentment, but he said he had to learn it whether he had very little or was in a place of abundance. See, I think what we actually see from the text in Hebrews is that contentment is actually harder the more that you have. Not if you don't have a lot. As we get more, we become less content. And again, the, the exhortation to contentment is rooted in the character of a faithful God. And so what does the author say in regard to that? Look at verse 6. Because he has said first, he says to you first, I will not leave you or forsake you. Then, what does it say? Verse 6. So, because of that, because of what he said, we can now confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Your confidence is not because you have strong faith. Your confidence is not because you're a strong person. Your confidence is because of who God is and what he said to you. He is our helper. Because of him, you don't need to fear. What can man do to you? Now, I think it's interesting that he brings that up here. And here's why context is really important for us. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a struggling church who is experiencing persecution because of following Jesus and are being tempted to walk away from Jesus. And so he's writing this to them. And if we remember back to Hebrews chapter 10, we learned in Hebrews 10 that some of the persecution these brothers and sisters are experiencing is that people are taking their stuff. They're taking things away from them. Taking property or goods or maybe taxing them more, charging them more because they're following Jesus. And that happens even now in our world today in different countries and places. People are thrown in jail, persecuted for their faith. Things are taken from them, stolen from them, taken from the government and others because they're following Jesus. Now, for you and I right now, that isn't the case, but perhaps one day it will be that will be taxed because of claiming Christ, penalized and pilfered for our following Jesus. Right now, the, the tax code is set up in such a way that if you give a certain amount of money, you can write off those taxes. But one day, that probably is going to go away. Does that then mean we decrease our generosity because of that? See, the truth remains the same. You and I are called by God to be willing to give up things, all things, for the sake of knowing Christ. The surpassing value of knowing him, we count everything as trash compared to that. And we are called to give away things for the very same reason. Why? Because we actually believe that Jesus is better. Because we actually believe that. And if you have Christ, you have everything. Everything. See, how is the Lord your helper? 
because he came and he rescued you from your worst enemy and nightmare. Sin, your sin, and its eternal consequences. Jesus went to a cross and died in your place and rose again from the grave to set you free from your sin, to set you free from chasing after riches and things, to set you free from slavery to love of money. The Lord and no one else is your helper, not another person, not your job, not your earning potential, not your abilities or your bank account or your things, because it's the Lord and him alone who meets your greatest need, saving you from your sin and giving you new life in him. And it's the Lord and no one else who continues to be with you and advocate for you and empower you by his spirit and testify that you are a child of God. Do you know him? Are you trusting in him? Have you experienced his grace? When you need help, who or what do you look to first? Whatever your answer is, is the greatest indicator of what you value the most. So what do we do with all this? How can you and I cultivate contentment and be free from love of money? Well, let me give you two practical applications, two practical and connected steps. First, one of the greatest and most clear biblical ways to cultivate contentment, which I wish we had time to go into all the different texts that talk about this, but one of the most clear biblical ways to cultivate contentment and be free from love of money is through generosity. If we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talking to those that desire to be rich, he tells them the command there is call them to generosity. Call those who have a lot to generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is imploring the Corinthian church to excel in the grace of giving. That whether they have a lot or a little, to excel in the grace of giving. And this is how he challenges them. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9. He's called them to excel in the grace of giving. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He roots generosity in the gospel. Christ gave up everything for you. He divested his riches in order to bless you, so that you might be made rich in him. So Paul's point as he ties these two things together is that like Jesus was exponentially generous, so too should you be. Jesus himself in Matthew 6, again, talking about where your treasure, there your heart will be, also calls us to store up treasures in heaven by giving away what you have to advance the kingdom of God. See, I think that's the most stark Reality, the most stark irony of greed and love of money is none of it is really yours anyway. No matter how hard you've worked for what you have, everything you have is a gift from God. Your ability to achieve, your ability to earn a certain amount is all from God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. James 1 tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything is from Him. And so because God is the creator of all things, because he's the giver of all things, it also means he's the owner of all things. And he never relinquishes his ownership. 
He may give you more or less power through what you have, but He never gives you the ownership. You're a manager. You're a steward of any amount of riches you have, whether that's a lot or a little. Every person will be held accountable for what they've done with what they have. As Uncle Ben says in Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Or as Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, much will be required. This this leads to a stark conclusion for us. A, A lack of generosity then in our lives is not just a matter of stinginess, it's actually robbery. Because we've taken what's God's and we haven't used it in the way that God's called us to. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul reminds us of the reality of everything we have and the shortness of our life. He says, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Or as has been said on more of a street level, There'll be no U-Haul behind your hearse. You can't take it with you. So what do we do then? Man, individually, we strive to be purposeful and prayerful through our generosity, giving more and more away in order to have a greater and greater eternal impact through that experiencing more and more freedom then from love of money. When we have less to weigh us down, we have a lighter Reality to ourselves is we give more away, nothing to hold on to us. Randy Alcorn says in his short but challenging book, The Treasure Principle, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And as the redeemed people of God who follow Jesus as king, as people who are citizens of the kingdom of God, we're sojourners, right? This place is not our home. Our hope is not here. Our hope is not in what this world can give to you or promise to you. It's in Christ and the new heavens and the new earth and being with our King forever. We now then can live generously. We can send it on ahead by spending it now to advance the kingdom of God. To serve the poor and marginalized locally and globally through the local church. See, it's in our giving to the work of God that we actually get to worship God. So we give of our things, letting go of those things. We say, well, that's not where my love is. I'm not trying to serve money. I'm trying to serve God with what he's given to me. And Sojourn, I desire for our church to be a radically generous church. A radically generous church where we're using more and more of our resources to to make more and more disciples. That everything we do would be about mission and making disciples. That we would give more and more money away to plant churches and send missionaries and serve the poor locally and globally. That we would do more and more of that. I want us to be a radically generous church. But a radically generous church is made up of radically generous people. It's not just for you to look around and say, yeah, why don't you guys do that? Man, it starts right here. Starts with you. And we're going to talk more about this in the fall. But my encouragement and exhortation to you now is this write these questions down. Think about them really seriously this week. What does your life and how you use your resources indicate about where your heart is? What does your life and how you use your resources indicate about where your heart is? Are you giving sacrificially and significantly to the work and mission God has 
for this church to make disciples of all nations. And lastly, is what you're doing with your money requiring you to live by faith in God or only yourself? Are you actually having to live by faith? Because when you are generous in this way, when you live a radically generous life, you give sacrificially, it leads you then to be more and more dependent on the God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because you can't just look to yourself. Now here's something I don't want us to miss, something that's crucial in this text and leads to our second connected point of application. So generosity is a way for us to be pursue contentment, be free from love of money, but we have to remember that, thir- that Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 is not disconnected from Hebrews 13 1. Let brotherly love continue. Remember we said that a few weeks ago, that's the, the overarching header of this section. Most of what flows in the rest of Hebrews 13 comes out of that. Let brotherly love continue. So how is a call to be free from the love of money and be content, connected to brotherly love? As we said earlier, selfishness lies behind greed. And selfishness is the opposite of brotherly love. When we pursue wealth and riches for the sake of more wealth and riches, it becomes difficult to love God and love people. The people can start to be seen as a commodity instead of your community. What can they do for me? I said, what can I do for them? How can I come alongside of them and serve them and help them? And the call of the church is to, just like Jesus did for us, consider the needs of others as more important than our own. To collectively come together as the body of Christ, as we see in Acts chapter 2, to serve one another and together to advance the mission of the church. Go back and read Acts chapter 2. They, they come together and say, what does anybody need? Let's help one another out. And then the gospel goes forth and it says more and more were added to their number every day. As they, seek, as they sought to be the family, the community God had called them to be. See, all throughout the New Testament, when someone is in need, it's the collective body of Christ that gives of their resources to meet those needs. All throughout the New Testament, when missionaries are sent and churches are planted, it's through the collective local church and their giving that missionaries and church planters are supported and sent. It's not through a bunch of disconnected individuals. See, our Western mindset often just thinks individually, but how do we think collectively as the family of God? How do we love with one another and love one another as the family of God? And see, when a church encourages one another to actually believe that Jesus is better, we are a force to be reckoned with, no matter how big or small the church community is. See, brothers and sisters, God's plan A for making disciples and reaching our neighbors and the nations is through the local church. So if we're going to be free from the love of money, if we're going to pursue contentment, if we're going to be a generous church made up of generous people, we have to do this together. In Mark chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus tells us that the deceitfulness of riches and desire for other things enters in and chokes out the word. It enters in and it chokes out the word. What that says to me is that you and I need each other. We need each other to remind one another of this reality. That we can be blind to it. Again, remember no one typically thinks they're greedy. No one typically thinks that they're struggling with materialism. 
But I would say, and that in a place like Northern Virginia, we especially need to help one another with this. To be a family with one another. Because many of us have so much. So here's a challenge for you. What would it look like for you to get together with some brothers and sisters in this church and talk about how much money you make? And then talk about what you're doing with that money, how you're spending it. And talk about how you're using it to advance the mission of God in and through the local church. Like, to sit down and honestly talk about that. I mean, why are we so uncomfortable with something like that? That, if anything, if that red light's going off in your head, like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Maybe it's a good indicator that you're more tightly holding to your things than you think you are. And if we're family together, if we're for one another, if we love one another, then find a couple of people and sit down and say, help me with this and let me help you. Let's spur one another on. We can love one another by holding one another accountable, encouraging one another to trust God and reminding one another of the riches that we have in Christ. I want to see us as a church spur one another on and fan the flame of generosity. Not so we as a church can have more money, so that we as a church can advance the gospel to more places and the glory of God more and more and experience in our own lives greater freedom from the false God of riches. Two brothers in our church recently read through the book I referenced earlier, The Treasure Principle. Just picked it up and, and, and read it together and discussed it with one another. The, the elders and those that are in elder training right now are starting to read through that book. And I'm actually going to give away four copies of it today. I mean, if you don't have it, man, pick it up. It's a short little book that I think will challenge you to think about what it looks like to live a generous life, to be free from love of money. How might you love one another enough to help each other be free from love of money? In Luke 12, 15, Jesus, teaching a group of people, says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And church, I praise God this morning that my life and your life is not defined by how much you have or don't have. But it's defined by Christ and the good news that he died and rose again to rescue you and me and make us new. Sojourn, what amazing news. And because of the amazing grace that we've experienced, let's help one another crush greed and collectively worship our God by living like we actually believe that Jesus is better. We're going to come forward now and take communion. And we get to do two things when we do this. We get to participate in this meal together as the family of God. And we get to be refreshed in the reality that Christ gave everything up for you to make you rich in him. This meal is a reminder that generosity and sacrifice is a glorious grace. And so this morning as you eat the bread, a picture of Christ's body broken for you, and as you drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you, may God refresh your soul in the grace of Jesus and empower you to live a life free from love of money, content in the provision of your Father, and radically generous for the sake of His glory and the good of others. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, and first of all, I just want you to know I'm so glad you're here this morning. We always want this to be a place, a community that you can come and be with and gather with and, and ask questions and listen and learn what a life with Jesus looks like.
So if you don't yet know Christ this morning, I just would ask that you not come forward and take communion. And the reason for that is because this is a testimony for us that Jesus is our only hope. That apart from him, that we recognize that we are condemned by our own sin for rebelling against God. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, if you haven't trusted in Jesus and what he's done for you, then let me just ask you to hang in your seat. And if you're ready to take that step to place your faith in Jesus today, tell him that. Just pray and tell God you want a relationship with him. That you want him to forgive you of your sin and you know Christ is the only way for that to happen. And then let somebody around you know that. And if you're not ready to take that step this morning, just let somebody around you know that, hey, but I want to learn more so we can journey with you in it. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables in the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, we just come before you this morning and just grateful. Help us to be grateful, God. Grateful that you, in the riches of your grace, you've lavished on us the riches of your grace. That we have everything in Christ. That we've been rescued from the condemnation that we deserve because Christ took it on himself. So Lord, we rejoice in that. That you have displayed so clearly to us that you will not leave us and you will not forsake us. Because you sent your son for us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize that in the midst of that, that in our own lives, that you would help us to unmask greed. Lord, show us where we're finding contentment in the things we have, where we're lacking contentment because of what we don't have. Lord, would you unmask just areas of greed, and I'm sure at different levels, people are at different places with that, but help us not to compare ourselves to one another, but compare ourselves to what your word says. May we submit ourselves to your word, your living and active word. God, free us from the love of money. Help us to be content in you. And then, Father, out of that I pray, and that through that I pray that you would make us a radically generous church made up of radically generous people. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back, but so we can exalt the name of Christ and see more and more of our neighbors come to know Jesus, more and more churches planted, more and more missionaries sent the name of Christ might be heralded to, the, heralded to the ends of the earth. Lord, we praise you this morning. Forgive us for where we've been greedy. Forgive us for where we've sought our hope and other things. And help us to step forward in forgiveness and grace tomorrow to be the faithful men and women you've called us to be in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.